You're listening to the Impact Theory Podcast, your source of empowering ideas and actionable techniques from the world's highest achievers. Join host Tom Bilyeu, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of the billion-dollar brand Quest Nutrition, on a journey to unlock your potential and realize your vision of success. Welcome to Impact Theory. So how do you help people ascribe meaning to trauma is probably the most important thing. Something very bad has happened to them and they have to put it in its place. How do you do it? How do you put meaning to something? Well, first we have to look at the truth of it, right? And, and the truth very often is that just something really bad has happened, right? That, that abuse and denigration coming through the lens of prejudice is real right? The death of that person is real. The injury is real. And we need to honor that. Now, can there be a silver lining, so to speak, of, of negative things? Yes, there can be. And that's not a Pollyanna statement to make. And when people make it in a Pollyanna way, we'll, we'll turn this good. <laughs> There's nothing to get someone who, who suffered bad trauma to recoil from you more than saying that. Like, we have to acknowledge that it's bad, right? There's nothing good about having been abused or denigrated. Like, there's nothing good about this, right? It's bad. But we can see it for what it is and for what it means and what it doesn't mean. Someone really hurt you, there's shame there, but the shame is on the person who hurt you, not you, right? Let's see it for, for what it really is. And then we can move forward and we can make something good, right? Has good come of my brother's suicide? I think it has. It's a huge part of why I went to medical school. And I like to think I've helped a few people along the way and that it's made me, it's allowed me to maybe be a more compassionate person than I might otherwise be all of my other flaws and faults aside, right? That like it's done something for me and allowed me to do something for others. That doesn't mean I think my brother's suicide was a good thing. And I have to be able to see that and understand that. And then I have to be able to see it for what it is and what it isn't. Do you knowingly say I'm ascribing this meaning to that as a way to, um, give it meaning, feel better. Like I, for me to really acknowledge the mental jujitsu helps. I don't want to be oblivious to it. I want to say, okay, this really horrendous thing has happened. I want to be hyper aware of my response. I want to be hyper aware of the tools that I need to deploy. I need to find meaning to this. I need to ascribe meaning to this. Um, do you do that? Do you mean with myself or with others? Yeah, with your or? brother's suicide, just to be really point blank. Sure, you were saying, sure. I like to think, yes. but I'm saying, do you do you spend time attaching that to that and saying, I went to medical school partly because of my brother. I have helped people uh, in his name. I don't know if that's how you think of it, but. Yes, yes, I, I do think that, right? I do think, okay, what were the sequelae of that event? Right. Sequelae? I don't uh, know. That word. What came after it? Like, okay, so the event happens. Was it consequences is all negative, right? So, what, so it's what were the downstream effects of it? What happened after it, right? And there were things that happened that, in the clarity of hindsight, I can see were just very bad, right? And they led bad places. Then there are things that I can see led good places. Like, for example, it gave me some freedom to go do something I wanted to do. So I did want to help people, but I also all of a sudden felt very naked in terms of knowledge of the human condition. And I thought I went to college and I'd been out and about in the world. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, I don't understand anything. I felt so afraid and vulnerable. So part of my drive was to learn and experience and make myself safer. 
Part of my drive was to be helpful to others. But I put so much pressure on myself that I would never have gone back to school and thought, hey, you're going to, you know, people were telling me when I left my job, like, whoa, like you're not going to, you know, you're not going to have a real income for 10 years. And like people are saying things that scared me, right? And that, that would have scared me too much before, but it gave me permissiveness of like, look, I'm alive and I'm, and I'm healthy enough to go do this. Why would I not try doing it, right? It emboldened me in a way. Maybe some of that was through desperation, a desire to make meaning. At the time, I didn't fully understand it. I knew some of those things. But in retrospect, you know, hindsight can be a lot closer to 2020 if we think and explore ourselves, which I haven't done this all on my own. I mean, I've had wonderful therapy. I'll, I'll thank Gregory Hamilton, who's been my therapist now for 12 years, for helping engender insight in me and, and help me to be able to do this and to say, hey, there's a life narrative in me in which meaning has been made and goodness has been made of something that I see as bad and negative. Okay. So we can obviously find a path to reconnecting to other people when something has happened in the past. We can find a way to ascribe meaning to something that happened in the past. How do you help somebody who is under tremendous pressure right now? It's, it's an ongoing trauma and I think it's useful to focus on an ongoing trauma that one chooses. So this is born of Lady Gaga and um, her break. And I'm very curious when you look at that, are you like, you need to retire like this is too much? Or are you going, here's how we become either more resilient or more courageous or whatever. I'm assuming it's it's more mental jujitsu. It's, it's a reframe. But what does that look like as somebody and I'm asking, I'm not asking for a friend. I'm asking for myself as somebody that like really wants to push the envelope of what is possible. What I will routinely run up against are my own limitations. So I'm always trying to push mm -hmm. my limitations a little bit further out, become more resilient, be able to handle more. One, do you just advise people like that? Stop. You're just going for too much. Or are there tactics that one can deploy to think about it anew? to be able to go farther. Right. We, hopefully what, what I can engage someone in is a premise we can both agree on, right? So look, if your life is overwhelming, like things aren't going to be okay, right? It's a pretty straightforward premise. Um, if you're overwhelmed, like you're not going to navigate forward in a way that gets you what you want. So if we can agree about that, and sometimes it takes a little time, right? But if we can agree about that, then we can look at, okay, how and why is your life overwhelming? Right? Like maybe what you're doing, you could actually do quite well and quite readily if you took better care of yourself in other ways. Right? If you, you know, exercise, diet, you know, d d uh, different choices about life structure. So maybe we need to look at that, that what you're feeling overwhelmed by doesn't have to be overwhelming for you, but are you taking care of yourself? Right? Maybe you are taking really good care of yourself in the sense of feeding and watering and sleeping and all of those things of self. Right? But look, it's just unreasonable. Right. What you're trying, what you're foisting on yourself. I mean, given I'm very, very fortunate that I get to see so many people who are very high achieving, they have very high distress tolerance. Now, it's wonderful to have high distress tolerance in many, many, many ways, but that's also the person who can take on way, 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 way too much. Right. And like, look, I don't care how capable a person is. There aren't 30 hours in your day. Right. There aren't, you know, there aren't even 25 in your day. Right. So sometimes there has to be like, why is it that you would be asking more of yourself than is, of yourself than is possible? 
right? And we're not talking about like, can you stretch yourself and be at your best, right? We're talking about things that just make no sense. Like, you know, nobody can do that, right? And that's why, oh, people who try and do that, like the outcome isn't good. You know, we, we, we see that. So we have to be rational. We have to look at it because you know, logic is also very important, right? We have to understand like, what are you actually doing? Or like, why are you overwhelmed? We have to understand that. We learned earlier in the interview here that the logic doesn't matter. Me, anybody else is driven by emotion primarily. So right. in fact, do you think of um, somebody who is hyper-driven? Do you just assume that they're pushing back against a trauma? Like it, often, not always, but but think about here is, again is how logic is subservient to emotion, right? If you come in and tell me I'm overwhelmed and I just can't take it anymore, right? Okay, you're telling me something, right? I want to understand it better, right? Then let's say we're talking and you're going to tell me things I can understand through logic. Well, how many hours do you sleep? I ask you that, okay? Are you how are you eating? Are you exercising? Who's in your life? Are you taking care of yourself? Are you drinking too much? Like I start learning about it, right? And you're going to tell me we're going to exchange information based upon logic. And here's what often happens. The person uses logic in a wonderful way that, that conveys all the details and tells us a story, but all of that is wrapped up, right? And, and has like the blanket of, of where emotion, right? Affect, that limbic stuff drives a person, right? So you may very, very, very logically tell me why you have to have 30 very, very busy hours in your day or you're not good enough. Right. I'm like, okay. I, I mean, we have to understand the logic to understand how we're going to come at that, mm. but the premise is driven by something that's emotional. Otherwise, the logic would say, hey, I should stop that, right? I mean, I'm a very capable person and I'm very driven, but there's like, there's only so far, right? You know, by the way, the last three times I did this, you know, twice I ended up in the hospital, like, you know, wh why would logic not say to behave differently? It's because logic matters in the details of all of it. We need to know that. But logic doesn't matter in the drive. So then I become curious and I wish for you to be curious about why is it that you have to be more than human? Right? Like, why is it that what you as a very capable person say in this example, or what, why is it that what you can do in 24 hours, if you're really taking good care of yourself, isn't enough? Or why is it that you think you can be extremely productive and still feel okay when you're not taking care of yourself? You know, so then we, we, it's the emotion, right, that, that the emotional part that's driving everything. But we need to understand the logic within that in order to say, okay, like, we have to have communication and back and forth of us of information and decide how we're going to come at it. Interesting. Okay. So um, I may not be the best example on this because so, in fact, I'll give you my breakdown of what I do. I have a, a stance around overwhelm that I teach my students all the time, which is I don't do overwhelm. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is not that I have infinitely strong shoulders, though I, I am constantly trying to push how much weight I can carry comfortably, but I'm very pragmatic about one's biological needs. So my thing is I'm never going to do things that cause me to lose sleep. If I'm losing mm -hmm. sleep, then I know immediately that I have to change something. So what I tell myself is doing less is always an option. So if I'm starting to feel that rev up where I can feel my mind, it's, it's starting. I, I don't even like saying overwhelm because uh, I have such an identity mm -hmm. of I don't do overwhelm. Mm -hmm. But when I can feel that state that leads most people to becoming overwhelmed, uh, I do what I call downshifting. So I force my mind to slow down. Mm -hmm. So I don't think, oh, what more can I do? What more can I take on? I think, how do I relax? How do I slow down? What do I eliminate? Um, because doing less is always an option. And so I'm very careful not to build my self-esteem around being able to do more. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um 
because that's a very dangerous game. But what, what I'm really fascinated by is, so you have a high performer like Lady Gaga, but the thing that freaks me out about her life that I recognize in myself would be a danger mm -hmm. is the bigger stage you play on, mm -hmm. the more sense of like, hey, these people, maybe they got a babysitter, they came out, they spent a ton of money to be at this concert, and now I need to perform. And uh, um, there are all these promoters and managers and everything. They're all counting on me to do more show dates. And so and also I'm I just know that not one singer ahead of me ever has lasted forever. Right. Mm -hmm. Everybody goes away. Kids today don't even know who Michael Jackson is. So it's mm -hmm. like. Right. So no matter how big you are, just poof, gone. So there's a sense of making hay while the sun shines. And so there's all these sort of innate pressures and to me, to play the game well, it it isn't just to do less. It is also to figure out how you can do more without distressing yourself. So you want to push your tolerance. You want to make sure that you don't value yourself for the amount that you can do. And you uh, also want to know that doing less is always an option. So it's, it, it's this really interesting thing. Mm -hmm. But when I look at other people that have achieved way more than I've achieved. I'm just like, whoa, like they, they have either burned themselves out in a way that I'm not willing to, or they have figured out how to press that um, their breaking point farther away. And so mm -hmm. when I hear a story like Lady Gaga's, I secretly, I'm over here, like I want you to tell me that you have some secret formula where she can just reframe, hey, you can't worry about what other people think or whatever, hopefully not that trite. And now right. you can like play on the biggest stage ever. That's right. secretly what right. I want to hear. Yeah, and, and here again, I know I keep saying this, but it's just so important. It's all personalized. Like who is that person? So just one example, you said, like sleep is inviolable for you, right? Like you can't change the sleep, right? So you know yourself well enough to know that, right? For me, I can change the sleep, but there are other things I can't change, right? So it's like know thyself, right? Because that's how we know how to take care of ourselves and understand ourselves. So then beyond those kind of maybe more basic or mechanical parameters, right? We then look, the interesting part are the intangibles about the person, right? So, so for example, very high distress tolerance, high levels of conscientiousness and high levels of empathy or empathic attunement is wonderful, right? But boy, doesn't that create a liability, right? Like there's another side of everything, right? Every good thing can be too much of that good thing can be harmful to that person. So that's the person who's going to see like, there's more for me to do. People want more of me. There's more good to do, right? And, and because there's a high level of distress tolerance, that person can overextend themselves way more than the vast majority of people can. And they're in a setting often that facilitates that, that says, right, right, more is better. That's thinking more about that than the person. Then the person's conscientious, right? Wants everything to be great, right? And they're empathic. They understand how people feel and how they make them feel. And then that is a recipe for the person being so well-meaning and wanting to take care of themselves, which is pushing themselves farther than they can be pushed. And that's where the lesson often that I, I find that I'm bringing to people who have high distress tolerance or conscientious or empathic and are in the public eye in a way that they can do a lot of good, you know, and they can do a lot of good through their presence in the world. Just one example, right? They tend to get themselves overwhelmed because they're trying to do more than a human can do. Right. And, and then what we're talking about is like human standards do apply. Like you know, this is a very, very capable human, 
But like you have to allow yourself humanness, right? <laughs> so now we're coming at that, right? Is it true? I mean, sometimes we, I'm saying, is it true that you have to be more than human to be okay, right? And I, at times, will be saying that to someone. Now that might be someone who has wealth and fame and wants to do certain things that, to, to make the world better. It may also be the person who is quietly toiling away, you know, taking care of five kids and has a job and a home to take care of and, you know, and feeling bad about themselves because they can't shoulder it all because no human can, right? So, so the limits of humanness and recognizing works against shame, right? Because if you think you're supposed to be more than human, you end up failing, right? And feeling ashamed of yourself, feeling, feeling like you failed. So the person has to know themselves enough so that they know what works for them and what doesn't. You need sleep, but maybe the thing that I need, you don't, right? So we got to know ourselves and what works for us and what doesn't work for ourselves. And then we have to understand what are reasonable limits, right? And do they change, right? I mean, I see people who say after having a pneumonia, real example, it takes people a while to recover, but they're furious with themselves that they can't do, you know, two weeks after the pneumonia, what they were able to do before. And, and the rest is like, whoa, like, you, you know, you need to be kind to yourself. You have to nurture yourself. Like you can do all that again, but just not now. Like you're not supposed to be superhuman. Like after humans like break a leg or get pneumonia, they t- it takes recovery time, right? But that's when we're getting at often, what is the trauma that tells that person that they have to be more than human, right? And, you know, sometimes if people want so much of me and I'm so empathic and I've labored under, I need to do more for so long. Maybe it's that. Maybe that person was very vulnerable when they were younger and they learned the only way I'm going to take care of myself is to be superhuman. Maybe they learned that they weren't good enough unless everything was an A+, right? I mean, we don't know where it comes from, but if that's the lesson... There's something traumatic at the root of it. Yeah, for sure. So as one sort of last take on that, how do you balance grace for yourself, love for yourself, acceptance of your limitations, a willingness to be human with wanting to push yourself and really taking advantage of what I think is the greatest gift of the human experience, which is you can get better. Right, right. Well, it has to start from a premise that says, look, I can, I can make my life better. You know, I think I can make my life good. And then let me try and understand myself because what you just described is hard to do. So if a person doesn't have the ability to say, go out and get psychotherapy, right? Then reflect, meditate, talk to people around you about life. You know, plenty of people talk a lot, but they're not talking about each other, right? You know, we talk about, hey, what's up with you? We haven't talked in a while about like what's going on in life or you've looked a little different, you know, one way or another. Like when people talk really about life, reflect about life, write about life, think about yourself, be curious about yourself, right? I'm never not going to therapy. I don't care what happens. My, if you say nothing could ever go wrong again, I know that's not going to be true, but I'll go to therapy because... It's hard to understand ourselves and it's hard to keep the plate spinning of life, even when we are trying to be conscious of taking care of ourselves. So, so if one has whatever abilities or resources we have to understand ourselves and to be curious about ourselves and others and people we love around us, take advantage of it. Because what you just described, like that's when people are living healthily, right? That's when people can roll with the punches pretty well when things go negative, you know, in a negative way. And and they can feel good about the things that go positive and they can make rational attributions. Like, hey, that thing went well and it's not just luck. Like people will say, everything bad is my fault. Everything good is luck, right? I mean, how many times do we hear that of 
take responsibility if something didn't go well and you're a part of that, like, look at that, right? The goal isn't to let people out of their responsibility, right? You know, if you're driving along carefully and somebody broadsides you, like, I, I can't map that to your responsibility. Mm-hmm. But if, you know, you weren't really paying that attention the way that you would really like to have been, like, just take ownership of that, right? It doesn't mean it's your fault, but it's like, I want to look at everything and I want to understand how I can bring myself to bear, to make my life better. And I want to do that when, when they're negative things. And I want to do that when there are positive things. I don't want to discount the positive as luck or nobody loves me or nobody cares about me. Nobody likes me. Oh, I was out from work for three weeks and, you know, 14 people sent flowers, you know, or, or like really care to call, you know, don't, don't make yourself special in a negative way. Right. It's something I often, you know, find myself wow, saying. That's interesting. So, that, so it's about understanding because what you described is hard but it is not impossible. And it's not impossible even when there's a strong current for a person to swim against. And that current isn't necessarily, isn't determined by socioeconomic status, right? Or, you know, or by some other demographic where, where, where people will think like, I'm not going to be able to do that, right? It, it, it can be as hard whether people have resources or don't, or like, you know, there's, there's no arbiter of how hard that is, right? Other than if people are really struggling, obviously to put a roof over their head and food, like we need to help as a society people more, but to not be deterred because I've never had therapy before, or, you know, I, I can write an introspect, but I, I don't have insurance to go get, get someone to help me, or I can buy one book, but not five. It's like, just start doing something because that factor of, does it register in you? I can understand myself better. I can make my life better, right? Maybe I'm not responsible for the bad things that are running over and over in my head. That factor is worth more than all the seemingly logistical things that money and resources can provide. So don't be deterred if you don't feel that you have what it takes, even if you don't have anyone to talk to. You, have a, you can have a pen and paper, right? Like th- th- there are things we can do to help ourselves and don't be deterred because that resolve that awareness, maybe life can be better, often matters more than any other factor. Yeah, I, I love that a lot. I think that that's an area that people um, fail to understand. And I, I think this is the biggest trap about trauma is it leads you to believe that you're not going to be able to improve things. And mm-hmm. so uh, I always push back against too much self-acceptance. It's like, I do want people to love themselves, but I want them to earn that love. And the reason is, in fact, it's not that I want people to, it's that there is an algorithm running in your mind, given to Mm -hmm. you by evolution that demands that you earn your own respect by doing things that you believe Mm -hmm. are valuable. Mm -hmm. Now, the things you believe are valuable are going to be born of both evolution, Mm -hmm. uh, again, with those algorithms and things you've chosen to believe, but you can't stand in front of the mirror and just say, I love you. I love you. I love you. Unless you can tie that to reasons. I love you because, and unfortunately I think our I think everybody's love is conditional, even your mother's. And certainly your own love of yourself is highly conditional. And the sooner that people embrace that and realize one of the great joys of life is getting better, growing, pushing yourself and improving. Mm -hmm. uh, You just have to be very careful about what you build your self-esteem around. In fact, speaking of that, do you talk to people about what they build their self-esteem around. This feels yes. like a really important yes. thing. What do you encourage them to build their self-esteem yes. on? Relevant to that question and everything that you just said about wanting to look in the mirror and be able to love yourself and respect yourself and feel good about yourself is look, we always want to know what we don't know, right? If we don't know what we don't know, we will fall victim to it. So understanding that we can't know everything 
about ourselves, that the process of understanding ourselves isn't just taking stock of what I know now, but it's curiosity about ourselves. It's the kind of things that come out to us through meditation or reflection or conversation. It is so important to know that we can't just look in the mirror and know everything about ourselves. Like a, a great majority of what goes on inside of ourselves is hidden from us. It doesn't mean that our conceptions of self can't be both good and conscious, mm-hmm. but we need to be respectful of, of the things that we don't understand. And even that there are things that we don't understand because it is, uh, it is very often that from which we start building the, the strong sense of self, right? Because we, we have to start off from a place that is real, right? It's why I think I had said to you when we were talking before that like my math minor, as I, I often say, is I think, you know, the most helpful uh, academic or intellectual thing I've ever done, right? It taught me to look at things in a logical, linear manner, right? Because logic is important. Like there are times it doesn't get trumped by emotion, we're using it for understanding, right? So we want to be able to bring logic to bear to try and understand ourselves. But part of that process tells us that we want to bring logic to bear in understanding our own lives, that we can construct narratives, that we can go look at ourselves and say, okay, wait, what happened when? Like we can use logic to accept that that thing we were kind of pushing under the surface maybe actually was really traumatic. And and I can think about the changes in me before and after. So we use logic to construct a story of self, right? And the story of self is very interested in us, right? It's interested in ourselves. And it's interested in the things that have gone on or are going on underneath the surface. Because that tells us about the things that are more powerful than logic, I might be able to logically describe to you all sorts of things about myself at a certain stage of life and all sorts of different things at another stage in life, right? And maybe those things became negative in the, in the context of trauma, but I need to understand that, oh, something happened that shifted what is true inside of me, right? In a mathematical way, if you can't understand it, go back to the givens, right? So if it's a given inside of me that I've been the same all along and nothing has really changed in me in some way that I don't understand, I'm totally not going to understand how I have changed in my conception of self, right? If if I can perceive that, hey, trauma can change people and I can see that I'm different outside of the trauma, then we go back to the givens of the problem and we see that something has happened and the whole lay of the land is different, right? That's why I wrote in the book that I wrote about a map that has changed, that maybe you had a map helping you understand yourself and what you're capable of and what you're good at and what you enjoy and what you know you might steer away from because you don't enjoy it as much or aren't as good. Like you understood all of this and you understood that you were a good person and a perseverant person. If you cease to understand that, the whole map of self has changed. Mm. So we may need to go back to that. And that's what I'll often end up saying is because people sometimes will want to start off from the givens, the premise that nothing's ever going to be okay. Maybe I could eat something out, but I'm cursed. And we have to go say, well, we have to go back to the givens of this problem, right? Of, of like, did your map change because of trauma? And again, we can use a mathematical analogy or we can use a, the analogy of a map. But what we're trying to get at is constructing a story of self that honors logic and uses logic to investigate, but most importantly, honors the impact of the limbic, of the emotional, right? And if we're going to honor the impact of the limbic and the emotional, we will not be able to do that without honoring the impact of trauma in very, very, very many people. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein 
and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is off Offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. And that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash impact and use code impact to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash impact theory. Yeah, that, uh, that is a complex bag of things. Speaking mm-hmm. of complex bags, my favorite story in the book is Uncle Rango. Uh, which man, it's weird to say that that's, uh, a favorite, but Mm -hmm. I was actually really inspired by that story. Um, if you don't mind, who is uncle Rango Mm -hmm. and how did he make it into the book? Well, I so appreciate that you said that it's it's my favorite story of my life, right? In, In terms of, um, learning from it, right? I may have stories at the birth of my children that are more emotional, but when I think of life lessons, it's the best story Mm. because very little was expected of him and he was expelled from school in the sixth grade no one paid much attention to him he was angry he fought a lot right there were a lot of things about him that from the outside would have looked very unimpressive like someone who didn't have much inside of him and i don't know how he felt about himself Back then, he didn't have a lot of words to put around those things, right? But what I do know is he lived a great life. And he was a good person in the community around him. He was good to his family. He was solid at the things that he did. And when he talked about himself, there was such a dramatic change after he went off to service in the Second World War. Because what was inside of him came to the fore and he was promoted in the field uh, several times over to become a master sergeant and was decorated twice for bravery in battle. And the one that he was proud of that he talked about to me and I think to my mother 
and certainly to his wife, but it may have been to no one else, uh, was that he jumped out of a foxhole under heavy fire to rescue someone who had been shot and was sort of left there to suffer because maybe people would try and rescue that person and get killed themselves. And mm-hmm. without anyone else, he jumped out, he, he put the person, you know, bullets flying and he made it back, right? And I think what he understood from his experiences was that he could lead people. When, when push came to shove, uh, he could call upon in himself uh, qualities, perseverance, resilience, that as far as I could understand, no one thought were in him and he didn't think was in him either. At one point in time when he was leading a group of men behind enemy lines, they radioed in and thanked them for their service, right? Many, the, the expectation was that they were all going to die. And he led all of them to safety. Now that was the first time he was decorated. And I think this honors the complexity of trauma because I think what my uncle experienced in the, in the second world war made him a person who had a good life, right? I should say he made himself a person who had a good life, but that experience was germane to it. But the second world war was an awful thing and it was an awful thing for him too. And the reason he never told people about the decorations, we knew he was decorated, it was, it'd been in the papers, but he wouldn't talk about it, including the one where there's no shame, right? You jumped out of a foxhole with bullets flying, you put someone over your shoulder and you carried them back and saved their life, right? What is there to be ashamed about? Nothing about that, but he was ashamed of himself. Because in order to lead those men from behind enemy lines, someone had to kill the prisoners they had. And his thought was put into a position of leadership where now he was leading was you can't ask somebody to do that. You can't order someone to do that. I don't know how the command structure works. If that has to be done, it's your responsibility if you're in charge to do it. And it tortured him the rest of his life. So, so much good came in what he learned about himself, but the suffering came along with it. And I think it honors the complexity of human beings and of trauma. And ultimately, I think it is a story of triumph that he did survive. And people sent him letters many, many years on. There were people who sent him a letter. It was another grandchild. And they'd send him a letter. Like, here's another person who was born because of what you did for us. Mm. I mean, I saw some of those letters, right? But he carried within him the shame that he understood that he was capable of killing someone who wasn't armed, regardless of what the situation was. And he understood that he did the right thing. I mean, he was very concrete in that way. It was the right thing to do. But it doesn't mean it's not supposed to torment you. Yeah, for people that don't know the details of the story, which you cover in the book, they had to cross back over uh, from enemy lines at night silently. And they had three prisoners of war uh, who obviously would have been incentivized to make noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he killed them. That That is, uh, man, to your point, that's just, that's brutal. And goes back to that, need to contextualize what it means. And I have to imagine in terms of assigning meaning that it would be incredibly meaningful to see the people that came into the world that otherwise would not have, had he not brought them back. Did he ever talk about that? Very little. What was clear to me, I never asked him this because I didn't ask him things, you know, at times he said things. And as he got older, he said a little bit more, but I was very careful, as was my mother, about what we asked him. But it was very clear that he would never have done that to save his own life, Mm. that he could not have done that. It would have been shameful to do so, to save. As he said, there were three boys just like me. That's what he said. There were three boys and I was one boy. 
They spoke a different language than I do. No matter, four boys, right? But he was responsible for all those other men. And I think that's why it meant so much to him, because that was the meaning of it all. And all those letters were saved, and my, my aunt, his wife, died after him, and the letters were burned, and their ashes were buried with her. That's how important it all was to him and to her. It was my understanding that she um, she was the one that called for them to be destroyed because she said they're his and nobody else's or something. What I don't know why that hit me, but it hit me. What what was her logic? Why why not? Um, you know, you look at somebody like Churchill. I'm reading a right. biography of Churchill right now, which, by the way, is astounding. <sighs> His life is absolutely incredible. Yes. Um, but he wanted the world to read the letters. People used to say, sometimes you felt like you got a letter from him because he was right. like pre-printing it. Right. Um, why destroy them? I would kill to read those. Yeah. I believe it's because they were so personal, right? That there was a personal justification for what he did that was embodied in those letters. In the next child or as life went on, grandchild, great-grandchild, that, that, I believe reminded him of the meaning of it. Like that, that's what I thought about it at the time. And, and I thought that ever since. And, and, and he and my aunt had agreed to that, that they were so personal that if he died, whoever has died last would be buried with the ashes of the letters. And then whenever she died, she would be buried with his dog tags. And that's Whoa. what they did. Man, their relationship sounds uh, very interesting. And I would, going back to connecting to another human is the thing that's going to get you past trauma. I'd love to hear more about their relationship. Anything that you know about, like, was that a gravitational center for them? You know, going to war. My uncle was in Vietnam and my aunt uh, has been pretty clear when he came back. It, it, that Mm -hmm. was sort of the beginning of the end. Um, and just, he was never able to contextualize the trauma Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. um, it did not lead to ideal relationship behavior. So what was it that allowed uncle Rango and his wife to connect? Like, was it a knowing thing? Were they good at this? Cause it sounds like before he went to war, he's fighting a lot. He's getting in trouble. Nobody expects much. It's kind of surprising that he ends up having this, um, yeah love affair for his entire life to the point where she's being buried with his dog tags. And I mean, it's just like, it's pretty intense. Yeah. So to the best of my understanding, you know, my uncle Rango had a lot of charisma, There was a lot about him that drew people as well. He was a good leader. And my aunt Rose was quite a catch, right? I see that from the pictures and how everyone talked about her and they had a romance before he went off to war and they had something that people unfortunately often did not have in the Vietnam era, which is like the knowledge that people at home, you know, were pulling for them and thought they were doing, Mm, understood they were doing this, right, that they were doing something important. And, and he was, was conscious of that, that he was going off to fight for, they were very proud, they were Italian immigrants, they were very proud to be American. And he was going off to fight for America. And her man was going off to fight for America. They were very traditional in their roles. Mm. And, you know, part of his motivation, which he talked about, is he wanted to come home to her. And she wanted him to come home to her, and that was with them. I, I think in letters, I never knew that they write letters to one another. I never learned that. I pre- they must have, right? I just didn't know them. And then when he came back, he was received in that way. He was a hero 
in the community. I mean, the, 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 you know, there the were communities were very ethnically and in many ways still are ethnically divided. Uh, the Italian American community and a lot of the people in certain generations of immigrants. And he was a hero in that community. You know, he had gone off and fought for America and he'd honored himself. So he, he had that. And she was very respectful in that way that like, she just loved and admired and was in awe of him for what he had gone and done. And he loved and admired her for, you know, the steadfastness of the person that she was. And I don't know if my uncle Arango ever washed a dish and my Aunt Rose didn't go out and lay tile, but, you know, they had very traditional roles. Um, those roles were so mutually supportive. And and it's not just specific to that era, but it it works so well for them. Uh, and I think under, you know, the roles then couched the real closeness and intimacy that existed between them. And I think he was able to share with her in a way that he wasn't with anyone else because he was very, you know, ashamed to talk about feelings, right? And I think he could talk about them with my Aunt Rose. I believe that to be true. Hmm. It's really interesting. You mentioned, um, the narrative and the breakdown of shared narratives really worries me in a modern context. I, there's no other time I would rather be alive. I am not pessimistic about the world in general, but I also want to face head on the things that are difficult. And I think that one of the things that's very difficult is the velocity of information made available by social media, the sort of algorithmically induced psychosis of only seeing one thing over and over mm -hmm. and over and over and over and over, whether that's um, the things you already believe or the things that make you irate, because that's what social media does to make sure that the engagement is up, uh, is really uh, upset people. Breakdown of shared narratives. So if what we've been talking about today mm -hmm. is on the money and how you contextualize your trauma, your role, the meaning that you assign things, how much do you deal in your clinical practice with people that they, they're just not able to put together a cohesive narrative about who they are, what they bring to the world? And do you think about that breakdown at a, a societal level as well? Like, does that make your radar as something to be concerned about? Yeah, you know, often it is hard to help a person establish a narrative. I mean, I think once we get rolling, it goes pretty well, but sometimes getting it moving is hard because there is that resistance, right? And that is often because the person doesn't see the social context, right? So, so think about someone who internalizes that they are less than because of a prejudice that they grew up with. And they grew up with it so intensely, and it was like the only thing present in a sense, the soup they were swimming in, so to speak, right, was was that. And then the shame of it tells them where logically they can say, I mean, how many times does this happen? I could never count. Where they could say, someone else, I would never tell anyone they're less than because of, and they'll say the thing they were bullied or were the, the lens through which the prejudice came, right? But they feel that they are different, right? But But me, I am ashamed. I am less than, right? Because that's the lesson of trauma. People will say that all the time. They, they would not denigrate or tell someone, oh, you're hopeless or this or that because of the exact same thing that has happened to them, right? But we reflexively make ourselves special for negative reasons. And then we lose sight of that. We lose sight of truth, right? So we have to come at that, right? So, so one way of coming at that is it used to be done. And sometimes it's like an empty chair way. Well, please Tell that person who's been through exactly what you have. I mean, what's the, the, the tactics not that subtle, right? Like we're trying to get the person talking essentially to themselves, right? And tell them that what they did is wrong and they should feel ashamed and it was their fault, right? And the person can't do it, right? Because they're thinking outwardly and they wouldn't say it to someone else. Do we have our route in? 
you know, or what do they say? So that may be a route in. In another setting with a different person, it may be to talk about the social context. Gosh, that's shameful in some places and not in others. You know, shameful in places that have a societal sickness and not in places that don't. Right. So, so look, we, we can, we can guide towards exposing the unconscious, which, which really often, what does it mean? Often exposing the lessons of trauma that are in us in these ways we're not aware of. The less than lessons, the shame lessons, the, oh, I'm limited lessons. I'm cursed lessons for you, but not for me lessons. So there are a lot of ways of getting at that. And sometimes there's resistance and sometimes there isn't. You know, again, it's, it's hard to tell and you don't really tell by intelligence. You, you tell by, can the person make a connection? Are they curious about themselves? And if not, then if I'm the therapist, it's my job to work hard for that of, I want to make a connection, right? I want to work hard on it. I want to figure out the route of approach because we all have narratives, right? We all have narratives. And if there's no real trauma impacting the narrative, great. The narrative is still relevant, right? Maybe that person who has recurrent depression that doesn't have anything to do with trauma does have to do with other purely physical conditions in their life or medical conditions, right? Like it's always important to know the narrative. And the narrative most often leads us to the impact of trauma. The narrative leads to the impact of trauma, meaning, help me understand that. What do you mean by that? Okay. I'll give an example I often give is, so this is a true story. So a young woman who had won an award in high school, okay? And she didn't grow up in privileged circumstances or where a lot was expected of her, but she was very smart, very empathic. Like you list all the qualities to like go out there and conquer the world. Like she had them all. But not a lot was expected of her, and it wasn't an environment where people were going to challenge, celebrate anything like that. But there were opportunities here and there, and she'd won an award right back in high school, and it was a big award to win. And it was the anchor in her to, look, I can do more, right? Like, there's something in me, right? Like, I I can go do this, or I can go do that. I can leave this place that hasn't done well by me, and I, I can make a life for myself. Like, she believed that. Why? Because it was true right? And it was anchored to something. As often, we anchor things that are important to something tangible, like, I won that award. This is what that tells me. Okay. On the other side of a very bad trauma, she had an understanding of exactly what that award meant. That was the understanding she'd always had of it, to ask her in the in the present, right? And it was that the award was a mockery of her, that it, that it showed that it was the best thing that would ever happen to her, that like that was going to be her crowning. You know, she was all sorts of sarcastic and cynical things about herself. And what it meant was that she couldn't go anywhere. The exact opposite, with no awareness whatsoever that that had changed in her. Hmm. She's so not an outlier. What I hear you saying then is nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. So because you said the narrative leads to the trauma. So if she, which I love, this speaks my language in terms of how I would hold myself accountable if something happened to me. So getting back to our initial question, uh, if, if I encountered a major trauma and look, I I have had my share of traumas, but I've always, I, I haven't one that I would sort of put as category one, uh, death, um, being attacked or something like that, thankfully. Mm-hmm. But if I did, the thing that I would be trying to figure out is how do I tell a story about that, that empowers me and allows me to move forward. And so what I hear you saying is that if the narrative is the thing that leads to the trauma, this 
look, the thing is obviously bad. Your brother dying is obviously bad. Right. So I am not asking anybody to believe that the trauma itself is good. But going back to Viktor Frankl, going back to Nelson Mandela, it's like being locked up for as long as Nelson Mandela was, being in a concentration camp full stop, just horrendous, horrendous. But both of them found a way to find meaning so that they could get through it and not only get through it, once out, like really thrived and and echoed through the world mm -hmm. in pretty amazing ways. So if what you're saying is true, the narrative can lead to the trauma, then the narrative should also be able to lead away from the trauma into making sense of something in a way that allows you to move forward in a positive way. Yes. Is I think the way I might summarize that, and I'll, I'll explain it, is to say, nothing that is not bad is automatically either good or bad, right? Like there are bad things, like being imprisoned unjustifiably. That's a bad thing, right? A death that's unexpected and happened suddenly is a, is a bad thing. Doing things to hurt people is a bad thing. It's a bad thing we can do. I have done that and it has been bad, right? That kind of statement of, I recognize in myself that I've done bad things. That's, that's sometimes the bad thing to recognize, right? But after parsing that apart, like directly harming people, right, is bad, whether it's physical, it's emotional. Like I, I, I'm very comfortable making a direct statement about that. Hurting people is bad, right? And there are ways we can do that. And there are ways we can't do that. If I have some slight value difference from you and I think, oh, that's bad because you're hurting my family values or whatever, that's not true, right? Like there are things that are, that are subject to opinion and there are things that are just very clearly bad and directly hurting someone is bad. And if you've done that, then we can take stock of it. We can atone. We can take stock of why did we do that? Can we seize upon the good in ourselves, make things better? Like the man in the other story who had done very, 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 very many bad things and was automatically doing bad things in a, in a reflexive way, who found it in himself to recognize all of that and thereby do something good, right? So we, we parse out there is good and bad, right? But after we get over that is what is our perception of it and trauma I'm simplifying a little bit, but trauma drives towards the bad, right? That means this thing is bad and you are bad. It's not this thing is bad and maybe you are not bad, right? But we have to understand that so that we can understand what it means. This bad thing has happened, but I am not bad. I lost my brother to suicide. That doesn't mean that I'm cursed. Doesn't mean that I'm a loser and I'm never gonna make anything of myself. Doesn't make any sense, right? Something bad happened, then I'm not bad. I'm not perfect either, and I want to look at ways to make myself better, but I'm separating the truth from the reflex, which is something bad has happened and I am bad. When I was around him and, and I didn't know, I didn't see, I mean, you know, that's the path we go down. Of, and I can, you know, I could, you know, I could count or could not, could not count how many times a person, including at times me earlier in life, would explain why I am bad in a way that seems logically very, very sound except is untrue because all that logical soundness is, is couched in the emotion that tells me I must be bad. So now I'm going to back map to the logic. Just like the person who doesn't make memories going forward says, I don't want to shake your hand, right? I don't know why. And then makes up a story, right? But the importance of the story is, is the badness, right? In that case, it's the badness because last time I shook your hand, it was a pain in like, I hurt, it hurt, so that's bad, right? But it's much, much, much more important, right? When the, the story is us. I am bad and I'm going to tell you why. And, and there's no one who, who, who believes, who knows, so to speak, that they are bad, who doesn't tell you a story of why. We all do, right? So we need to understand that the, the premise isn't right.
And if the premise is right, that there's bad in us and we've done bad things, I've worked with many people who've done things, we look at it, that as bad, let's call that for what it is. And let's look at it in a way, because as you commented earlier on in our discussion, we are responsible for ourselves going forward. Who else is going to take responsibility for us? Mm. I think that also means that we're responsible for helping each other more than we do, right? That if one of us has no one and is alone, that, that we contribute some resources to helping them have a cat. Or, you know, the, the societal interventions that link people to people who need people linked to them, like the gregarious person to the nursing home, or gosh, you're down on your luck, let's help you so you can get back on your feet. Like, we don't help people a lot in society. We owe more to one another because of our human interconnectedness. But that doesn't mean anyone's taking responsibility for us, and we, we can't and should not count on that. We take responsibility for ourselves. And Lo and behold, that's also how we marshal the best supports around us. Mm. If I take responsibility for myself, I say, okay, now let me look at who or what can help me. If I don't take responsibility for myself and I feel like nothing can ever get better or I think of some awful things and I got my head down, literally and metaphorically, and I'm not going to see the help that's around me. You might be standing next to me holding out a helping hand. I won't even see it. Those are individual narratives. What do you think about the shared narratives? So there's a couple things that I worry about. One, you've got social media allows you to algorithm your way to um, a narrow band of humanity and you never see anything outside of that. So you get a breakdown or an atomization is probably the right way to think about algorithms. You get an atomization of the algorithm. So you're having an experience that is relevant to you and all the things that you've cobbled together, but you don't necessarily have a broader spectrum of like a, a wider sense of unity. So you talked about um, Uncle Rango was Italian, but he was a proud American. Mm -hmm. And that sense of the bigger narrative of proud American that yes. that is breaking down. And so we get into um, smaller tribes because you're eventually going to be in a tribe. But the bigger the tribe, I think the better off you are, the more atomized the tribe, the more problematic. So that's part number one, that we're getting into these very atomized tribes. Part number two is the kinds of things that used to give us really broad tribes was religion. And once re religions and by the way, I'm not religious. Um but once religion stopped being a truth and started being a story, I think that's like that just furthers this atomization of uh, the tribal units. And when I think about, OK, the, the thesis that we've laid out today is you really need to connect like that. That's a big punchline. And the fact that a person can think themselves dead because they have stopped connecting with other people is just really, really crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so when you look at what's happening in a modern context, do you see that feeding into um, trauma, depression, an inability to create a positive state? And if so, how can people inoculate themselves yeah. against that? Yeah. Okay. I just want to scream. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes. Um, we are in a place societally where I believe we step further and further away from our responsibility as citizens. My uncle saw it as his responsibility as an American citizen to go to war for America, right? We often don't see it as my responsibility as an American citizen to think about what's coming my way. And then we falsely polarize. If group A and group B are opposed, and I'm in group A and you're in group B, 
right? Isn't it so much easier if some data comes my way, allegedly, right? Some assertion that says how bad group B people are. I'd be like, yeah, I don't like them anyway, right? You're bad and I'm not. And then data, information, alleged data comes to you that group A people are bad. Right, you're bad. I, I mean, we're distancing ourselves because we're not fulfilling our responsibility to stop and think. Confirmatory evidence is is emotionally gratifying, right? If I think B people are bad and like a B person did something bad, I, I see it in the news and somebody pushed it to me, right, you're all bad, right? Like how many times are we doing that? How many thousands and thousands of times are we doing that? And then the political mechanisms, this is not my place, I think, to be political, but to say psychologically, right? Political mechanisms harness that. Right now you have a bunch of people who are not assessing data one way or another who give in to the seduction of the confirmatory evidence. It feels good to see that, right? Instead of saying, well, wait, wait a second. A B person did that. Did an A person do the same thing? Like maybe none of this matters, right? Or is that really hurtful to me? Or is it just easy to say, yeah, and that feels good to me? Look, the same way we have a responsibility of sometimes reaching for the apple and not the potato chips, right? It's a lot easier to reach for the potato chips, but if you keep doing that and you're not taking responsibility for yourself, right, you become very unhealthy, right? So we say, and we should say more, you have a responsibility for yourself, right? We don't talk about the responsibility as citizens to have some understanding of what we're, what is true and what we're saying and why, right? It doesn't mean we shouldn't have opinions that differ, but let's separate truth from opinions, right? I don't think it's politics to say that when you have, say, pictures side by side of like, this is crowd size A and this is crowd size B. And crowd size A is bigger than crowd size B. And we could survey first graders across the world and they'll agree with that. But yet we have an entire set of assertions and then further assertions and alleged facts based upon the patently untrue idea that the smaller crowd was bigger. Like, we're not going to be okay. Right? Like, we need to reject that because we start treading into truth doesn't matter because it serves me to think that truth doesn't matter or because it serves me to harness people who are susceptible. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. So we getting to what is true is very problematic. And I definitely, I share your concerns there. But before we move on to truth, how do we generate a shared narrative? What What is the right um, level of analysis right. for building out the narrative? Is it country? Is it neighborhood? Is it right, left? Is it global? Like how do we, in a world where atomization is the gravitational pull what do we use in a world where it doesn't seem like religion fits the bill anymore? Although maybe that's your answer and I'm certainly open. 
Um, mm-hmm. But what is the thing? What is the narrative? How do we use mm-hmm. that to bring us together? Mm-hmm. Well, it's got to start. It's got to start close to home. The idea of take responsibility for a lot of things, enact and live that responsibility towards some of those things, and don't feel responsible for everything, right? So the idea of take responsibility for a lot of things, right? So I take responsibility for what's directly around me, right? I take responsibility if I walk outside the door here and someone has tripped and fallen, I'm going to stick a hand out to help them up. Right. If, if you look really sad and I'm a little worried, I'm going to say something. Right? I'm going to take responsibility for the, for the, the people in the situations around me. If I'm intimidating someone and getting my way met or I know someone wants to say something to me and I turn my back through one way or another, it's, then it's my responsibility to stop doing that, to look around me and to take responsibility and then, and then take that on higher levels too. Right. The, the immediate, the street I live on is, is much more my responsibility, right, than, than the community I live in. But the community I live in is, is my responsibility too, right, as is the world, right? I can't solve global warming, but I could think a little bit more about am I buying, you know, bottles that get re- recycled to put in a landfill, or did I think to take something with me I can put water in? Like, so there's less responsibility because we can control less, right? But then some people can do very much on the world stage, right? But it has to start in a pyramidal way with responsibility for what's closest. So, so the first responsibility is between me and me. Am I selling myself short by telling myself lies? Am I selling myself short because it's easier to eat the potato chip than the apple and I really don't feel well? And, you know, I can't exercise anymore and I see my energy going down and like, that's awful. And where's that heading? Right? So I got to be responsible to myself. And then if you're the person sitting next to me, I have to feel some responsibility for you too, especially if we're under the same roof, we're in the same family, we're in the same community. Right? So, Take responsibility for those things. And that's what, that's what leads us to cast with a wide net, right? Then really enact and live responsibility for the roles that are closer to home. So an obvious example is parent, right? If parent is part of your responsibility, then live that, right? Live that, right? If you're not doing as good a job as a parent because you're depressed and you haven't taken care of your depression or because you're drinking three or four nights a week to soothe the tension and that impacts your kids, or even because you think that the success that you're making in some way is doing things they need when they really need your time and attention. Like there's a million different ways that can be, right? But step back and really take a look at that role, right? Because that's a role you want to really live, And then don't feel responsible for everything, right? When people are empathically attuned, conscientious, right? It's very easy for people to then feel responsible for everything. They're responsible for everything that's going wrong in the family. They're responsible even when someone else's lack of health may be driving all of those things, right? They feel responsible in ways that don't let them go out and strive more because they're taking on unreasonable burdens, right? So, so, Take responsibility for a lot of things and act and live responsibility for some subset of those things and don't feel responsible for everything. It's like if we bring that, then we honor the nuances. And, you know, if we talk about some political issue or whatever it may be, and I see that, oh, you and I think in a diametrically opposed way, right? If we're doing that, then instead of some reflex that now puts you in a bad category and then wants nothing but confirmatory information, right? I'm like, oh, like, let me... Well, like, let me at least learn how you think. Maybe I'll learn something from you, right? And and maybe if neither one of us convinces the other one little bit, we have an experience that someone in the other camp can be reasonable, 
right? I can be reasonable, right? We have a shared human experience, even if we differ. And it's that that we wish to engender. And in many ways, the, the hyper-confirmatory social media, right? And you know, yes, it can be difficult to tell truth from lies, but, you know, sometimes one plus one is two and not three, right? So if we're living in those responsibilities and we're grounding ourselves, then we don't choose the thing that's easy. You know, we don't, sometimes I want to choose a potato chip, right? But if I choose it all the time, that's bad, right? So maybe sometimes a person chooses the information that, 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 um, confirms what they want to hear, right? But like most of the time, don't do that. If you can, don't do it all the time, right? And if you do that, you bear responsibility for that. When you have a set of opinions that don't acknowledge that other people could possibly have different opinions, right? Or that there's something other than demons because they have different opinions, then you know, you're in a place that has to come in some way through the lens of trauma, right? Because who becomes that adamant, right? I must be right. And if you don't believe in me, you know, you're demonic. I mean, there's like, there are pr- that's a problem. Right? So it comes through the lens of trauma and it begets trauma. People who don't have all that trauma in them can say, okay, like I, I don't agree with your opinion. I don't like your opinion. And I'll actually fight against your opinion. But like, that doesn't mean I don't want to give you a helping hand if you've fallen down. Right. I mean, that makes sense. Right. But we have to step out of ourselves enough and into truth and rationality and shared humanness in order to be able to do that. It's a responsibility. Mm. No doubt. Speaking of humanist responsibility, what do you think about AI? Is that, do you see a path to that being beneficial or do you see that as um, a race down a path of further isolation? Yeah. I, I have no special knowledge, right? I, I think like many people, I feel a sense of hope, but I also feel very afraid. Right? And, I think that's appropriate. And, and specifically, so why in me is because I talk about AI a fair amount with people and sometimes people will solicit opinions and, and I get to have really interesting conversations about it. And I think what happens a lot, and I know it's not all the time, but, but people come at AI often through the lens of we're going to use some form of logic one way or another to get to a place, right? But humanness, human thought and human decisions are not just based in logic. And in fact, they're trumped by other things. And I think if we're going to create intelligence, we have to honor like what actually goes on inside of us, right? And then we have to be very careful because if we're honoring that and what we're trying to create, it also has great capacity for uh, dereliction of duty to others and perpetration of evil towards others. So it makes me afraid when I think, are we coming at it through some um, overdetermined and overused set of logical processes that ignore the uh, the more important side of the equation, right? The emotional or the affective, that worries me. Then I think, okay, what if that is honored? That worries me too, right? Um, but I do feel that sense of hope. I, I just think we have to be very, very, very careful because to some extent we're playing with fire when we're playing with human will, right? So if we're going to make will outside of us or intelligence outside of us, let's be extra careful. I mean, I'm simplifying it in some ways, but I, I just, I think it warrants caution. And I think it's another incentive to really try and understand ourselves. And where does the perpetration of evil come from, right? You know, someone who decides, I just, I'm going to feel better if things are worse for you. That's a great question. Where does the perpetration of evil come from? Is that, do you think people are born with that? Do you think that it's shaped over time? Well, I think there, there are, biological 
predisposition certain ways. There can be certain characteristics or traits through uh, uh, genetics and the manifestation of genetics. But I, what I believe is far more interesting and the lion's share of the responsibility is the trauma that happens to people, right? Like very few people, you know, want to really, really hurt other people when there hasn't been something really wrong in their own life. Right. Which is why the education that I'm, that I would strongly advocate for in say elementary school is not just about let's help the person, for example, who's bullied understand the bully, but let's help the bully understand why that person is bullying the other person. There's a lot of people who are bullies at 10 years old are bullies at 50 years old. Mm. Right. And are they leading companies or governments or families? Even a lot, a lot of people are leading families. Right. Or they're, they're, they're part of a family. Right how much is their trauma at the forefront? And not always, sometimes it drives people to the opposite places of, of being caretaking and, and, and things that are very, very positive, but it can drive people to reenact the trauma, to wish to have power by reenacting and, and being the powerful person in ways they were on the other side. I mean, that's why people talk about, you know, they'll say repetition compulsion. It's not that, right? And not everybody who's traumatized traumatizes other people. Absolutely not. But it's a very, it's a known thing that is, that happens with a high degree of frequency, right? And it comes from the terror of being traumatized and then the identification with the aggressor because that means safety, right? So, so I'm just giving one example, right? Of where. Why does identifying with the aggressor mean safety? Because identifying it, as the aggressor? Yeah. And there's not a set of logical thought process because often people who are doing that don't actually think that, but they're being the aggressor and they, they can't. Vast, most of the time put words to that, mm. right? So, so, the, so identifying with aggression or enacting anger. I'm really, really mad at a world that's rejected me. I mean, if you, if you look at commonalities, just for example, in biographies of Adolf Hitler and Joseph Stalin, you absolutely see estrangement from a world and then an immense amount of anger towards that world and destructive impulses, right? And you think trauma does so much damage, including in the subset of people who have early trauma that leads to evil. And they're responsible for the evil. This isn't, oh, somehow we're letting people off the hook who are perpetrating evil. But but does trauma in certain people, in certain situations, you know, take all comers, there's going to be a significant number of people in whom trauma, especially early childhood trauma, greases the wheels of progress of doing evil. So it is so, so important that we understand trauma, understand what it does to us, start this understanding when we're young. Right. So, so we understand as, as a parents who are raising children, right, in education paradigms of understanding trauma and, and being able to fight against it in ways that I believe, I, I truly do believe can absolutely change the world. I think the majority of awfulness of suffering that's wrought in the world is wrought through the lens of responses to trauma or people who don't resist those responses, right? Because the trauma in them might be leading them to lead, say with less self-assertion or less coming up against something uh, and asserting themselves than they might, right? So when you see the, when you think about the impact of trauma and sometimes it gets studied through couples or through family systems and, and you can often tell like, oh, here's this constellation within this system and, oh, th this person's trauma has really you know, really kind of push forward landing them here. And this person is push forward landing them there. And this seed of trauma fell in that sort of fertile ground for this problem or that problem. And it's not always that, but boy, there is a lot of that interwoven into human suffering, whether it's the human suffering from one, you know, enacted from one person to another in a household setting, or it's someone who is, you know, starting a war and murdering 
thousands of people wholesale, right? For, for you through that lens of trauma. So in a small lens or a big lens, it's all awfulness. It's all suffering that gets pushed forward by trauma and by our responses to it. And furthermore, by the fact that that the the responses in us are, are often hidden from us and from their for from our ability to understand and change them. The woman who saw the award as a mark of shame and a mockery did not know that she gained from it so much inspiration and strong sense of self, and it led her to do good things that moved her life forward. Didn't even know it anymore. So there's there's so much power to trauma that we see in these examples. They're real examples, and then we think this is going on writ large, and we have the ability to better understand it and to better treat it mm. and to prevent it. Yeah, I mean, the 20th century is replete with, I don't know Stalin, but certainly um, many of the other experiments that went wrong from Mao to Hitler. Um, and seeing the echoes of trauma, if that really is the thing that underlined all of their behaviors, is it's pretty terrifying how far that goes. Which coming back to AI, there was a book called Upgrade by Blake Crouch, which wasn't about AI. It was actually about gene editing, but it could have just as easily been about AI in terms of the the premise of the book and spoiler alert for anybody that's going to read it. Um, but the premise of the book is uh, that a woman becomes convinced that uh, humans just cannot make the right decisions and mm -hmm. that all of this trauma, whatever, just emotions basically is how she saw it emotions make us do really dumb things, short-sighted things, things that don't play the long game. And so to advance humanity, mm -hmm. um, she's going to create a germline edit to the genes and then propagate it across the whole world through super spreaders. And the upgrade is all intellect. And so she's basically going to make everybody super intelligent. And by doing that, People would then be able to solve the greatest problems from climate change, whatever. And as it plays out in the book, they estimate that it'll kill a billion people, but that then everybody else will be smart and they'll be able to solve these problems. And the punchline of the book, again, spoiler alert, so if you plan to read it now, would be the time to, to mute uh, the podcast. But um, what the, the, the hero of the book ends up realizing is, Oh, my whole life I've wanted to be more intelligent. That's a mistake because the second, because it's basically a brother and sister, the mother upgrades her two kids. And the second they become super intelligent, they each try to kill the other because they don't believe that they're right. approaching the problem in the right way. Uh -huh. And then the one who's like pushing all this forward is willing to kill a billion people. And so the other guy goes, okay, maybe this is still hubris. Uh, but I'm going to do a different upgrade and I'm going to make everybody more compassionate. And so to your point about, okay, what is the stem of evil? If the stem of evil is an emotional thing that then is carrying out, it's, it, it is accelerated by intellect. You know, as far as I can tell, Hitler was, was pretty fucking bright and he was certainly charismatic. And when that's coupled with evil, like you have a very bad combination. So it's not like intelligence automatically makes you human friendly. Absolutely not. And so I think that's what everybody's struggling with with AI is that just because you're smart doesn't mean that you're going to be friendly to humans or friendly to life right. uh, in general. And so then what does become the way to align things? And is that going to be compassion or something entirely different? And look, alignment is many, many, many 
three hour long interviews by itself. So trust me, I know that I'm just skimming across yeah. the surface right now, but it's very interesting that as people look at the AI problem, that they're coming to that conclusion of what, what is the thing? Like, what do we have to do? Do we have to make it love humans? Do we have to make it love life? Is it, you know, something completely yeah. different? And then somebody who's coming at it from the trauma angle saying the same thing. Like if I want to help unwind evil or pain and suffering, um, I'm coming at this from a perspective of love connection. It's a different orienting mechanism, which is very interesting. Um, myself as somebody who's always lamented that I, I definitely wish that I was far smarter than I am, mm. that <clears throat> the over pursuit of that may actually not be optimizing the human condition. It feels like it would be, uh, but in reality, the, and, and this is certainly, I tell myself this because I believe it. And I certainly tell others because, uh, my North star is human fulfillment and flourishing. Mm -hmm. Um, the best thing that life has to offer you is the love of another human. Mm -hmm. There's nothing else. So, mm -hmm. you know, people look at my success and I think they're drawn to the, um, the wrong things in terms of, if you were to emulate my life, the one thing I would say, oh, that, that is going to make you happy for sure would be to emulate my marriage, not mm -hmm. my pursuit of success that I would actually, I won't, I won't say it's, it's not inherently bad, but it's a very dangerous game, not falling in love, not cultivating a relationship would be dangerous, cultivating a relationship, making that your number one priority. That's going to reward you like for sure. If there's anything that I'm confident in, it's getting good at that. Doing that poorly is mm -hmm. its own nightmare, mm -hmm. literally a nightmare nightmare, but doing it well is better than doing money well or doing anything else well that I have ever experienced. Yeah. yeah. I want to start my response to that with, with the example you gave, which I think is, is perfect uh, of the, the story, right? That edits out right anything but intelligence and starts optimizing intelligence. And that's the thing, right? That's the thing that's going to carry us forward. We've edited out what's not that, right? What's not logic and intelligence. I feel so sure that if you run that experiment ahead, if everybody hasn't killed everybody else at some point in time, everybody who's left will have Cotard's syndrome, right? Which is nothingness. That's why we're so terrified by it because the meaning isn't in the logic. The meaning isn't in logic, good, bad, or otherwise. The meaning is in emotion. When someone perpetrates evil, they're angry, they're frustrated, they feel terrible about themselves, terrible about others, it raises emotions in them. When someone sacrifices their life to save someone else or to help someone else, there's an emotion in them, there's empathic attunement, they feel for the person, they feel for something greater than themselves, right? It's, it's, it's the affective or the emotional, if we want to put that word to it, that drives all the action, drives all the action. The logic is just adorning it. Right. The logic is just this, the structure around it. You know, the logic of the, the pieces that go into the car, right? The, the emotion is the person sitting in it, driving it around and things are happening, right? Like the, the logic just is the building bug, the, the structure of it and the specific pieces of, of what goes into move something forward in, in time. You got to put gas in the car. You got to maintain it. Like it's, it's all logical principles, but nothing of it is interesting. What's interesting is like the person in it, what they're feeling in it, right? What they're using it for. I, I'm trying to create an, um, I'm trying to explain how like logic is part of the picture, but it's like the styrofoam around the thing that matters, right? In a sense. And I'm not saying logic doesn't matter. We figure things out. We figured out penicillin, for example, like logic matters, but it doesn't make meaning. 
It's emotion that makes meaning. It's all that limbic affective stuff that makes meaning. And it's that where we want to engender health, right? Where we want to work against trauma and we want to prevent trauma. Because when people are healthy, they come to a place of gratitude and humility. This is how people are happy. And at this point in time, I have two decades of data of, of intensely working with people across the life spectrum, across demographics. And what's the commonality of people who are, have good lives, who are happy? It's not what's their wealth status, where do they live, what's their social status, how many kids do they have, how much money they have. It's none of that. Do they feel a sense of gratitude? Do they feel a sense of humility? Right? And that comes if trauma isn't weighing on them, right? If they have enough sense of self that even if really bad things have happened to me and I feel like life has been fair to me, right? Can I do something good? Can I go up my front door and help someone? It's that that makes happiness. I see more happiness in people who, who from the outside have absolutely nothing than I do sometimes in people that we think have the world. And that's not an exaggeration, If we get to a point where we feel gratitude and humility, we've taken care of ourselves. And it's always constructive, right? The destructive destroys, right? I mean, look, what did Berlin look like after the Second World War, right? Violence and destruction outward brings violence and destruction inward, or at a minimum, it limits us. Person who may, in a family system, be intimidating everyone around them, there's no life in them or in other people. No one else is expressing any life, and that person doesn't have it in them either. We take the life out of life, right? But if we don't do that, we understand ourselves as best we can. We strive to be the best we can be, which means understanding ourselves, what's true and what's not true, right? What's, what, what I'm capable of, that I have some faith in myself and I reasonably am going to try and make myself the best I can be. I'm going to strive. What are the chances I'm going to feel better about myself and try and make the world a better place as opposed to being destructive? And I think we see that as clearly as Math, the idea that there's actually no difference in value between doing good and doing evil. And people say, well, if there's no God and we can't prove that there's a God, whether there is or there isn't, there's a difference. And we see it so obviously around us. Like, what does destruction lead to? Oh, more destruction, right? We see that so obviously, yet we'll still argue against it. And I think it's that that we need to stop doing. We need to be responsible for the very basic facts in our lives, which is why I do believe if we're anchoring ourselves to health going forward, right, I, I've written about anchor ourselves to biological facts, like things we know, anchor ourselves to history, but it's also anchor ourselves to early childhood education. Right? I see a lot from people in positions of great power that they would call my mother to come get me if I did those things in kindergarten. Like somehow we can do that. We forget lessons of that we learn in kindergarten. I don't think let's act in, in the context of the, the most elevated or esteemed education we can get. No, let's start at kindergarten. That's what we need. And sometimes we see people with 15 years of higher education who need to go back to kindergarten or learn those rules. I mean, I don't say that lightly because that's the basic value system in us that leads us to be reasonable, to be compassionate with ourselves and others. And for us not to then either by choice or by stumbling to it, right? It's just enacting destruction. And creating destruction in the world around us. I believe that, and I, I think we see it over and over. And I do think it's self-evident if we step back and we look at it. I think it tells us. I think everything from the science of the the physics, where we have to we have to have counter entropy and parts of the universe have a possibility for there to be you know there to be a solar system, we planets. Like it's so overdetermined to fight against destruction, right? That's why we have a planet, right? Because the the atoms in the planet and the subatomic molecules aren't atomized across the rest of the universe. Like we're going against the grain of destruction. 
right? And, and that's no less true as individual humans, as humans sociologically, right, with one another as cultures. I, I believe that to be true. And I think the, I think the truths out there that, that we already have tell us that. I think that's a beautiful place to wrap. Where can Thank people you. follow you? If a person is interested, there's a website. It's drpaulconti.com. It's just D-R-P-A-U-L-C-O-N-T-I.com. And it, it has ways to acquire the book if anyone is interested and feels it could be of help to them. And it has links to other uh, other appearances on other podcasts. Love it. Awesome. Thank you. All right, everybody. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. And until next time, my friends, be legendary. Take care. Peace.